0: The construction industry in Indiana has depended on Quality Supply and Tool, a local family-owned business, to deliver quality sales and service over the last 25 years. The employees make the difference, like sales expert Nick Worley.
1: What sets us apart is we only offer quality tools and supplies from quality manufacturers. We have a quality-trained sales and service staff knowledgeable of the products we sell and offer. Quality, it's in our name.
0: On South Harding Street in Indy,
1: plus Jeffersonville, Bloomington, and Lafayette, Quality Supply and Tool thinks outside the box. Store
2: only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Poit and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth
1: Indianapolis 500. Beyond the With Jay Query and Mike Thompson, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. An absolutely perfect late spring evening in Indianapolis, Indiana. Good evening to you. My name is Jay Query. Mike Thompson here as well. Eddie Garrison running the Millennium Falcon for us as we are doing a Monday version of Beyond the Bricks on what is race week in Indianapolis. The GMR Grand Prix taking place on Saturday. Qualifying practice will take place on Friday. So there will be engines roaring to life at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And then, of course, the week after that, beginning practice for the 107th running of the Indianapolis... 500-mile race, so it is starting to get real, as they say. If you have not yet gone to your neighboring Sullivan Hardware to pick up a checkered flag, you still have a couple days to go out and grab one, put it right there next to the mailbox, and in fact, show your Hoosier native spirit, if you will, your residency as a Hoosier. Uh, Mike Thompson joining me as well. And Mike, uh, this time of year, man, I'll tell you what, this kind of day today is the type where you really start to get the juices flowing because it would be an absolutely perfect day to have sat out and watched some happy hour and gotten a tenderloin and a draft beer and just sat and watched cars go around for two and a half miles.
0: Absolutely. I have a quick question, though. Did you put in my order for a box lunch? (laughs) I I
1: put in for, and I always forget, is it the pimento meat that you like? (laughs) No, no,
0: trophy loaf. Trophy loaf, yes. Yes. Uh, I, I can submit sure you I, for a box lunch. To, yes. Yeah, I want to make sure if you could put me on the uh, the list for the uh, the box lunch. You for, know, uh, Mike, for the next
1: couple weeks. You know, it's it's fascinating. Kidding aside, because we do get box lunches for the radio network. They are fantastic. I believe Jugs provides them. But you know that I still marvel at this. My mom loves to tell, and I don't know how long they did this. I mean, I don't know in what year it it stopped. But in my mom's childhood, so we would be talking about—I'm not going to say my mom's age, but um, a couple of decades ago. But when my mom was a kid, she always talks about how, for the Indy 500, Mike, local grocery stores, you could order a box lunch, and if you gave them your ticket location, the box lunch was at your seat when you arrived at the Speedway.
0: Oh wow, that would that would be pretty cool. Isn't so. that amazing? I mean, that so is amazing.
1: You know, it probably was fried chicken and a ham sandwich and whatever else. But, yeah, the box – like, she – and it's also just a different era. Can you imagine how long those would last today, just like the honesty policy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, those would all be gone by now. (laughs) I mean, for crying out loud. It's bad – you know, it's – I always enjoy – and this happens every year. Every year you see a bunch of people that get free beer because some guy – was overconfident in the strength of his styrofoam cooler that bad boy breaks open before they even get underneath the southeast vista and now there's 36 cans rolling around and it's a free-for-all
0: right oh yeah right that's absolutely happened i've seen that happen myself
1: (laughs) it's a tradition like no other uh tonight mike i'm looking forward to the show because we are going to talk about somebody that you have had the pleasure recently i know of sitting down and talking with and i always say and i want to make sure that people understand this It is beyond my wildest imagination in my childhood that I would be able to be into the position in my professional career of getting to meet those drivers that I watched as a kid racing in the Indianapolis 500-mile race. I remember after the race when I was 9, 10 years old, calling the Speedway Motel to see if – like, I remember doing this for Tom Sneva – to ask if Tom Sneva was there because I wanted to call and congratulate him on winning the Indy 500 because I really thought like he, you know, he went back to the hotel and watched a movie and then got up in the morning and left and went to the next race. But so I don't by any stretch of the imagination, I think it would be disingenuous to imply otherwise, pretend that I have deep-rooted friendships with the stars and the heroes of the Indianapolis 500. But I have been fortunate and blessed as have you, professionally speaking, to have been able to interact with the the vast majority of drivers who raced during my childhood all of them I have found to be pleasant people many of them I have found to be surprisingly more humble than their level of accomplishment would you know require and some of them I have found to just be true gentlemen where when you walk away from it you feel like your life was was enriched by the interaction that you had because they were just a genuine warm person and I think sitting pole position in that category that I'm speaking about is the guy we're going to talk about tonight.
0: Oh, absolutely. No question. Uh, Johnny Rutherford is who we're talking about, and he's just one of the true gentlemen, one of the great, great ambassadors of the sport. And just a quick aside, I will say that when I was putting out my uh, trading card set last year, um, you know, it was just basically an idea, a concept. And I was, you know, trying to get different folks involved and, you I talked to Johnny Rutherford about it and you know, he's a three-time Indianapolis 500 winner. He doesn't have to give me the time of day on any of that stuff. And he was like, yep, absolutely. He called me up, left me a phone message on it and was like, I'm in, let's do it. Can't wait to be a part of it. And I was thinking, you know, you know, Think about the fact that, first of all, Johnny Rutherford called me, which was cool, you know, just in and of itself. Second of all, that he wanted to be a part of my project. So, you know, just one of the true, like you said, true gentleman, true. He's just a true ambassador of the sport and just one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet and, and just so giving of his time. I mean, especially to fans. I mean, just always signing autographs, always with a smile on his face with fans and just just a genuine person. Johnny Rutherford, by the way, John
1: Sherman Rutherford III, who has unquestionably the most distinguishable and beautiful autograph in the history of motorsports, was born on March 12th of 1938 in a trivia question where you could probably win a lot of bar bets. What state has produced nine Indianapolis 500 victories? Well, one of them would be Indiana. The other would be Kansas, because four belong to Rick Mears. Three belonged to Johnny Rutherford and two to Roger Ward. But Rutherford was born March 12th of 1938 in Coffeeville, Kansas. And despite the nickname of Lone Star JR and being synonymous with the Lone Star State of Texas, Rutherford spent his early childhood in the state of Kansas. Mike, my understanding is he talked to you about exactly that, Correct.
0: Yeah. I was lucky enough to get a chance to talk to him recently about a number of things for some shows that we're doing. And he talked about, uh, you know, growing up, uh, starting off his
2: life in Kansas. My dad was in the, in the army air Corps or the air force. And we moved around a lot to different, different bases and stuff. Uh, I went to 13 different schools during my, during my, uh, uh, schooling career. And, uh, it was uh you know we lived in Kansas uh uh oh gosh I don't know Till I was probably 6 or 7 years old and then we started moving around and uh wound up in Tulsa Oklahoma uh my dad uh was an aviation mechanic engine mechanic and he uh went back into the service and uh was the chief of maintenance for the Oklahoma Air National Guard, 125th Fighter Squadron. And anyway, uh, yeah, I uh, moved around a lot and uh, uh, saw a lot of things, but my dad took me to uh, to the fairgrounds in Tulsa when I was probably eight years old to see my first midget car race. And, of course, midget racing was very popular after the war because fans were wanting to get back into action as far as uh, entertainment, and midget racing was very popular.
1: So eventually, after moving to the state of Texas and kind of ending up in Texas, by the way, interesting anecdote to that, uh, having nothing to do with racing, but another famous Texas figure. I was in Lubbock, Texas a few years ago, went into the Buddy Holly Center, the famous rock and roll musician, asked to see Buddy Holly's childhood home and did not realize Buddy Holly's father was well ahead of his time, was a house flipper. And each year at the beginning of the school year, Buddy Holly's father would buy a house. They would live in that house during the school year. His father would fix it up. And by the summertime, Buddy Holly was on to another house with his family. His father would sell it. And Buddy Holly himself lived in 13 different houses between kindergarten and his senior year of high school. So another Texan with a similar type vagabond existence. But it was actually Texas where Johnny Rutherford finally did plant some roots and as a matter of fact he began racing modified stock cars in 1959 he talked with mike about his start in racing once he became a resident of the lone star state
2: and i actually started racing in 1959 at the old devil's bowl speedway in dallas texas and uh i was in a hot rod club uh here in river oaks my hometown in Texas, and uh, one night at the meeting, <clears throat> one of the guys said, I'm going to have to leave a little early. I'm going to help my brother put the engine in his dirt track car. Well, that set me straight up in my chair, and I said, dirt track car? He says, yes. They race every Friday night over in Dallas, Texas, at the Devil's Bowl Speedway. Well, I went out the next day with when his uh, uh, with the, he and his brother, and they had the car, and they were Running it, test, you know, just making sure the engine was working and everything. And when I think back about it now, I probably should have had a tetanus shot before I, before they let me drive that thing. It was, it was pretty ragged, rusty, and everything else.
1: Mike, one of the things I love about this, you're already starting to see the seed that was planted inside of Johnny Rutherford, like so many racers that we talk about and have studied over the course of the years. If there was an engine, they were fascinated by it, and the one thing about engines that fascinated guys back then, gals as well, was you wanted to know how they worked, but then once you figured out how they worked, Mike, you wanted to see how you could get
0: them to work even faster. That's right. Make them faster. And I, I love that sound bite because it was like oh, dirt track car. You could you could just hear even today, you know, recalling that from decades ago, you know, how it piqued his curiosity and, and perked his ears, you know. So I, I like that sound bite a lot.
1: And in addition to that, any track that you're starting out on called the Devil's Bowl, you know that you're absolutely tested to the limit and getting yourself, getting your feet wet on the right side of racing things. And Johnny Rutherford did exactly that. As a matter of fact, by nineteen sixty one he was graduating up out of the International Motor Contest Association and finding himself into USAC. Here's Johnny Rutherford on his first
2: USAC championship race. And McElreath was leaving to go up into the Midwest to uh speak his fortune in and, and uh in uh, race you know, racing, and so I went with him. And uh, that's when I got into IMCA sprint cars and uh uh it was uh it was, uh, you know, just another step in my education in racing, and uh, I got a ride uh, and at uh, Lacrosse, Wisconsin, raced in an afternoon and an evening race. And I, when I started, I had just enough money to buy a bus ticket back to Texas from Indianapolis, and uh, uh, would have had to you know, started over doing something else. But anyway, uh, in 1960 that two day, two races at lacrosse, uh, I made 40% of the prize money, which was $180. And in 1960, $180 for a weekend's work, uh, wasn't too bad. And, uh, that got me the ride. I drove it till the. Next season, and Diz Wilson, a uh, famous IMCA car owner, had a third car that he'd bought. And it was interesting in that it had once been the Pat Clancy six-wheeler. And uh, they cut it all, cut it down and made a sprint car out of it. And I got to drive the old Pat Clancy six-wheeler as a sprint car uh, for a season with Diz Wilson with an Offenhauser in it. And I had never run an Offenhauser before, and that's a different, a, a different, uh, uh, a different thing, you know. The Offies didn't have the have the uh, the giddy up that the Chevrolets did, uh, but it had torque, a lot of torque. And uh, anyway, it was a great experience. And uh, I raced. Uh, Who? Then I got a ride Don uh, Shepard uh, had a car owner in, in, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and, uh, had a, a nice little car. It was, it was different. It had been, it had been built in California and raced in, uh, in, uh, IMCA by Jerry Reichert, uh, for a while. And anyway, uh, started driving that car and we started winning races and doing well. And, uh, that's when McElreath called me, uh, after the third year in IMCA and said, Hey, there's a good dirt car at the Hoosier hundred. Uh, if you'd like to try to run it well, that I decided I was leading the points and only had five races left in IMCA and could have won the championship. And I look back now and regret that I didn't go ahead and stay there and add that to my list. But, uh, Anyway, it was uh, just one step at a time, and I, I was able to uh, get the experience and the timing and everything and uh, uh, did really well in IMCA and, and then switched to, uh, to USAC, and when you joined USAC, uh, you couldn't go run Outlaw anywhere. Uh, they protected the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that way. When we come back, Lone Star JR eventually
1: gets to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but first, his first big opportunity and a consistent ride, and it came with a hood on it. We'll explain when we return to this Johnny Rutherford edition of Beyond the Bricks. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kiskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kiskali
2: is right for you.
1: is Beyond the Bricks. Brought to you by Quality Supply & Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. And we are most most appreciative, easy for me to say, for Quality Supply & Tool and their assistance with this program. QualitySupplyAndTool.com, by the way, is their website. Absolutely fabulous work they do, and we appreciate them being on board. For Beyond the Bricks. Jay Quarry, along with Mike Thompson. And Mike, I know what a thrill it was for you to be able to talk to Johnny Rutherford, and now what a thrill it is for both of us to be able to share his story and his journey to becoming a legend of the Indianapolis 500 mile race. And that includes the early days where, as we just heard him talking about, you know, initially his ears perked up when he heard about racing on dirt. He did that, he got into the Hoosier 100. And then an opportunity comes, not necessarily in the direct path that would lead someone in today's world to the Indianapolis 500, but a chance for him to get 35 starts in a pretty big-time series.
0: Yeah, that's right, and uh, you can win a lot of trivia questions with this one or trivia bets, I guess you'd call it. Um, The fact that Johnny Rutherford won an official NASCAR race before he was ever in the Indianapolis 500. He hadn't even been in the race. He had not taken part in the Indianapolis 500, and he had driven – not only had he driven in the Daytona 500, but he had won – a NASCAR race because back then the, uh, the qualifying races for the Daytona 500 counted as official NASCAR races. So you can probably win some uh, trivia bets with that. And he talked to me a little bit about how he got that ride with Smokey Unic
2: I had a Pontiac dealer in Dallas with a friend and he called me up during the off season and said, uh, in fact, it was just before, uh, uh, the Daytona race, it was probably in, in, uh, Oh, February sometime. And, and, uh, he, uh, called me and said, uh, do you think you'd ever like to run stock car at the Daytona 500? And I'm going to say, no. Uh, I said, <laughs> yeah, sure. He said, come on over here and I'll call the guy. He's building a, uh, new Chevrolet and he, and he's looking, uh, for a driver. So, Anyway, I uh, called, I, I rather, he called, and, and uh, I didn't. still didn't know who it was that, that he called. And uh, he said, yeah, he's right here. I'll put him on the phone. And he handed me the phone, and he said, here, talk to Smokey Eunuch. And I nearly dropped the phone. And, and uh, I talked to Smokey, and he said... Uh, uh, yeah, we're building this car and uh, I want to hire, hire you to drive it. And uh, that was a puzzler because why would he want a sprint car driver uh, off of IMCA uh, to drive his stock car? Well, anyway, uh, he said, when can you be here? And I said, I'll be there tomorrow. Anyway, it was uh, it was an experience and great experience and, of course, boosted my stock and I, I had a call later, and in fact, uh, Smokey asked me, he says, You want to stay down here and run run with me?" And I said, Smokey, uh, I really want to go to Indianapolis and he knew because he he loved the Indianapolis Speedway. as you know he he developed two or three cars the the old uh, sidecar that he built and and uh, all the different different types of things. And uh he knew what what it was, so uh that was you know, that was it for me and, and uh NASCAR, although I had opportunities after that and and uh, ran, I think, in a total of thirty seven NASCAR races during my career, but uh that was my best one for sure.
1: By nineteen sixty three the opportunity did come for Johnny Rutherford at in Indianapolis. As a matter of fact, He started out that race in 1963. It was the 47th Indianapolis 500-mile race. He started in the 26th position. He finished three spots lower due to a transmission that knocked him out. And as Watson off, he came to rest on lap 43, U.S. Equipment Company, the sponsor. He didn't win that race, but he would get a big win in 1963. More on that in a moment. But first, Johnny Rutherford on his rookie campaign of the Indianapolis 500-mile
2: race. Well, it was uh, it was good, you know. I uh, uh, had a ride with George Walther from uh, Dayton, uh, Dayton Steel Foundry, steel wheels and everything. Anyway, uh, they had a Watson Roadster, which was nice car, but it had been. I found out later that it had been crashed at uh, uh, Milwaukee the year before. And they, they, uh, Buster Warkey, put it back together and was the, my crew chief. And uh, we, I ran the thing a lot, and it just couldn't quite get there. Uh, and we, we had it on scales. We could get the weight right, but the, but the uh, right heights were wrong. You get the right heights right, and the weight was wrong. I even had Parnelli come down and and uh, look it over, and he he shrugged his shoulders, says he he didn't know unless the frame was still tweaked or something and and uh, wasn't quite right. Well, we got down to the third day of qualifying, and uh, Buster told me he says go walk down the line, see if you can find something else to take a ride in and get a comparison. So I walked down the line, and Eddie Kostanek had uh, one of Leader Cards Roadsters he had bought, and uh, I got in that thing, and and uh, Lloyd Ruby had had driven it uh, the day before, and he came back. He says this this is a good car. He said when you feel it bump the curb, or bump the cushion down in the first turn or in the turns. That get after it. Said it'll take it. And so I went out and ran six laps and came back in and, and pulled in the pits and, and uh, got out of the car. And the guys took the car and started pushing it away. I thought, well, we must not have done very, very good. I said, Eddie, where are they going? He said, we're going to get fuel. You're going to qualify that thing. <laughs> so I, I uh, waited, and, and, of course, Buster was really upset with me for changing rides. But I got in the car and just before I went out to qualify, Lloyd came over and leaned in the cockpit and said, "Don't let us Texans down, Rutherford." And I, boy, that set me off. And I went out and uh, ran four laps, qualified for the race, and uh, uh, made my first Indy 500. And that was uh, that was a, a great thrill. Once I had had. Uh, Qualify, or once I'd qualified, I went out for practice and, uh, uh, you know, just was <laughs> driving, you know, just like I had been. <clears throat> and I went across the short chute and through turn two and started down the back stretch And Roger Ward went by me like I was painted on the fence. And I thought, what in the hell am I doing here? But it was uh, my first Indy 500.
1: There would be 23 more for Johnny Rutherford, one of the legendary figures at the Speedway. As a matter of fact, he became ubiquitous around the famed two-and-a-half-mile oval, especially even later in his post-racing career. Still is to this day, working as an official and working for different teams in different capacities for the league, for teams themselves, working on the radio network. Mike, the reality is that virtually any time you were bestowed the pleasure of seeing Johnny Rutherford at the racetrack, there would always be somebody else by his side because he not only encompassed one of the great racing careers, he also carried with him one of the true love stories in the history of IMS.
0: Oh, that's absolutely right. And and Miss Betty Rutherford, she was an amazing lady. I mean, she did so many things for you know charitable causes, and she was she was an integral part of the, the team. You know, her and Johnny. I mean, they you know she was on the timing stand, and you know she was a big part of the team. And so she was, uh, you know, she sadly missed. Uh, you know, we, we lost her a couple of years ago, and and uh, missed seeing her at the racetrack. But she was as, as you said, she was a fixture at the track.
1: Racing came seemingly easy to Johnny Rutherford early in his career from the first time that he sat inside of and saw a race car. Courting Betty might not have come so effortlessly, but like his racing career, in the end it all worked out okay. Here's Johnny Rutherford on meeting Betty and that courtship in 1963.
2: And I was walking with beside the car, and I just uh, leaned over and dropped my helmet in the seat, and uh, looked up, and there was this pretty little blonde standing there at the fence, uh, watching me, or uh, watching what we were doing. And uh, our stories vary here. <laughs> I I winked at her, and I said she winked back. I I told people she winked back. She said no, he waved back. And so that's the way it was. <laughs> and so we went back and I went out to do my tests and uh, had a problem with the car and uh, the chief steward told me uh, that uh, I could continue and, and finish my tests in the morning. And so I'm walking back to the garage area through the old uh, tower terrace there and into gasoline alley. And on the left side of it was a, uh, 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 first aid station. The other side was Firestone for testing, you know, air testing and everything you know, testing the pressure in the tires. And she uh, was standing at the door talking to friends. I didn't know she was a registered nurse and had been working there at the Speedway on her days off and and uh, whenever. And so, anyway, uh, I saw her again, and I, I walked up to her and I. First words I ever said to Betty in my life were, "Haven't I seen you someplace before?" And she kind of chuckled and and said, "Yes." And I said, uh, "Could I take you to dinner tonight?" And she said, "No, I've I've had plans." She gave me her phone number, and uh, I went back uh, into the garage and and. Uh, uh, Anyway, the next day I gave her a call, and I said, uh, can I take you to dinner? And she said, sure, and I found out later that the only reason she didn't go to dinner that first night was she wanted to find out if I was married or not. Well, she found out that I was single, and so we started dating. And uh, anyway, uh, he brought her brought her family to the track to meet me on one day, and they went up in the high corner of the stands uh, of the the Tower Terrace there uh, to watch the cars and uh, everything. And so I'm walking through Gasoline Alley, and Betty uh, gets my attention. And and, uh, so I meet her at the bottom. We go up, and I meet her mom and dad and— her little brother and her, her sister. He had a bigger brother, but he was, I think, in school or something. But anyway, uh, I met them, and her dad still wasn't sure that I wasn't married. You know, he just <laughs> knew how, you know, the drivers, what they did. And so we're standing up there talking, and all of a sudden, over the garage area PA system, you could hear it up there, was Johnny Rutherford, meet your wife and children at the garage area back gate. And I would give anything to have a picture that of her dad's face when that announcement came out. <laughs> I would have loved that. And wait, Betty and I laughed, and and he didn't he didn't laugh. But we stepped up to the top and looked over the back, and Bobby Marshman and Chuck Hulse, were nearly rolling on the ground laughing, pointing up at us. And so that was that was the the funny part of me beating her family. And uh it was uh, it was uh incredible. We were we met the first of May, we were engaged the first of June. and got married on july the seventh, nineteen sixty three. We were married fifty five
1: years. Johnny Rutherford's racing career was plenty of blessing, but there were some harrowed experiences as well. And he will relive perhaps the most horrific on the other side of Beyond the Bricks. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your
2: doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
1: Johnny Rutherford, the topic of tonight's Beyond the Bricks. Jay Corey, along with Mike Thompson. Several years ago at Edmonton for the IndyCar event, Johnny Rutherford was there working, of course, as an official for the series. I was fortunate enough to run into him in the hotel and was chatting with him for a brief moment. When he showed me a scar on the back of his neck, it was actually the scar from a burn that he'd suffered in 1964 in one of the most horrific crashes this event has ever seen that fatally injured Eddie Sachs and Dave McDonald. Johnny Rutherford had to drive right through that fire, unfortunately, and talked about it in his interview with
2: Mike. We went through turn three and and across the short chute, and as we got to the end of the short chute, I saw this red car and the dust cloud as the car went sideways, and he hit that concrete wall and angled out. Toward the racetrack, and this giant ball of of fire is just like drawing an orange and black curtain across the racetrack. Eddie was was—you know—we were both hard braking at the time, trying to slow down from our speed, and we—it we, was not hard, not easy to do, and at going that fast in those cars. And Eddie had a, a red a fluorescent, it's when that new fluorescent red paint came out, and he had a a ball on the top of his helmet painted red, and I could see that. I I still can see this accident, just like it happened. And uh, I could see that on either side of the roll bar, like he was looking for a way to go. And I was right on his bumper, and uh, he just veered left just very slightly just before he impacted uh, Davy, and both of those cars were the only two in the in the race with gasoline. And uh, when he impacted, the rear of his car reared up in the air, and he put a tire, right rear tire, skid mark up the nose of my Watson, about three feet long. And I I saw a gap between Davy's car tailpipes and everything. And Eddie must have moved him because I, I had a shot that went, I think, over the, or just slightly over the back of, of Davy's car and just scuffed the wall and broke out. But when I, when Eddie hit those two cars burning gasoline, it was like jerking the door open on a blast furnace. It was hot. And of course, raining gasoline uh, everywhere and, and, uh, uh, threw my head forward on the impact, and uh, I got second-degree burns on the back of my neck from raining gasoline. And when I came out on the other side, my car was, was burning with gasoline all over it. I got out and clear on the on the other side, and uh, the car was slowed down and starting to buck. So I reached down and unlocked the transmission, shifted it back to low gear, and tried to get going, and I heard, a, I heard an, uh, an engine screaming, and uh, just as I glanced left, Bobby Unser had hit the other car in our line, knocked the steering out on the Novi he was driving, and here he came across the track, and he hit me in the left rear and slammed me into the wall, and that fractured my fuel tank. I didn't know that at the time. But it, it, nothing. You know, I didn't. It didn't catch fire or anything. I drove on down the track and around turn one, and pulled around to where the thing had happened, and pulled up there. and, and Don Branson was was standing there, and he's, he he uh, motioned me to stop. And I stopped, got everything down, unhooked seat belts, and got out and stepped over. And then I could see the fuel, uh, methanol, running around the car. And, Two guys with fire extinguishers came over and stood by. And I started walking up toward uh, the accident scene. And uh, Don grabbed me by the arm. He says, you don't want to go up there. And I said, okay. I said, Am I, my neck feels like it, it's burning. And he looked. He said, yeah, you got some, some uh, second-degree blisters on the back of your neck. So he put me in an ambulance, and I went to the hospital. And I came back from the hospital with bandages on the back of my neck went into the garage just at the same time uh, they took all the cars out of the race and sucked all the fuel out of them if any and they brought it back and pushed it in the garage and and her porter my crew chief went over and unhooked the the uh, left left side of my uh, right side of my car hood and raised it up and we both standing there looked in and there was Looked like sand and and some, some gravel and a piece of windshield material, triangular shape, little piece, and there was a lump covered up with sand and everything. And Herb reached in and picked it up and brushed it off, and it had a shoestring run through it and around and the, and the end of it. It was a lemon, and it had had the end cut off. And Herb says, "Where in the world do you reckon that came from?" And somebody at the door said, "Oh my God!" Herb said, "What?" They had that around his neck, and uh, he used it to suck on during the cautions or during the race, you know, and uh, anyway, that's how close it was. Uh, but it was, you know, I just uh, we hated to lose two drivers, and uh, that's when uh, USAC voted against gasoline and at and, and Indy. There were many people, quite frankly,
1: Mike, and that is a fantastic of a tragic, obviously, situation, recall uh, by Johnny Rutherford there. And kudos to you, Mike, for the conversation with Johnny Rutherford, of which we will continue to play, by the way, tomorrow night with Johnny Rutherford. But I know we've talked about this before, Mike. There are a lot of people that were so understandably disturbed by what they saw in that fireball that Johnny Rutherford drove through that for many of them it soured their their feelings and their sentiments about going back to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Quite frankly, it was a terrifying incident.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, especially for, for people who maybe not, you know, might have been casual fans of the sport or, or really didn't, you know, they they went out for the atmosphere and things like that. And then to see, you know, that terrible, terrible sight that that almost like mushroom cloud, um, you know, that was very difficult for people to, to see and and i i remember specifically talking to donald about that obviously that was donald's first race and that accident happened and he went up there and into that area a little bit and and he was you know he he was like you know i've, I've wanted to come here all my life and and then this happens and then is this it is this going to be the end of this race it's never going to happen again because of how bad this accident was and you know he was actually thinking that at the time you know so Uh, You know, just a just a terrible accident, you know, terrible consequences uh, situation, losing Dave McDonald and Eddie Sachs to two beloved people. Mike, you have done a lot
1: of interviews with a lot of drivers over the years. In the last couple of minutes here, this stuff that we are hearing stuff is probably a a bad, almost uh, demerits the quality of the audio and the recollection from Johnny Rutherford here. But. If you could let people know, this was a recent interview, if I'm not mistaken, that you did with Johnny Rutherford, and it's part of a project beyond just this program.
0: Yeah, that's correct. Um, I did this interview just a few weeks ago, and uh, we were doing a couple different shows uh, that Johnny's a part of. Um, so they're going to air on WIBC. And so, uh, this particular program that I, they interviewed Johnny for, we're going to do uh, heroes of the 500s. Folks might be uh, familiar with that program on WIBC. Um, uh, Johnny, we're honoring Johnny. We we've honored several different drivers. We, AJ Foyt had an hour, two hour show. Uh, Mario's had a two hour show. The Unsers, um, Al Bobby. So, uh, this Johnny Rutherford will have his own two hour show that'll air, um, it, next week actually. So, um, Check your uh, check the WIBC website. It's going to be posted there. It's going to air on WIBC. It'll also air race weekend. But we're doing three different specials this year. So it's uh, Johnny Rutherford, um, a, a recollection of the years ending in three, and then also a documentary on the 1973
1: race. You know, one of the fascinating things about Johnny Rutherford, when you really look at it, and we will dive further into this uh, tomorrow evening, but when you really think about it, his career in Indianapolis <laughs> – You know, in today's world, the reality is, Mike, I don't know that he necessarily would have gotten ultimately some of the opportunities and the great teams that he did, which we will get into tomorrow night. But if you look at his early results, they were not glamorous results. And probably in today's day where things, and there's just a shorter attention span on things, who knows if Rutherford ends up getting some of the opportunity that he not only got but obviously proved to be completely justified decisions and opportunities.
0: Oh, absolutely! I actually said that to him. I said, "Do you think in in today's world you would have had the same kind of career? Because you know, people have this you know instant gratification, instant results, and he didn't have that kind of career." Uh, so. You know, we had actually had a conversation about that, about the fact that it took him so long to break through at IMS for a number of different reasons, partially because of his accident at Eldora and, you know, other different things. But, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, you know, people on Twitter, if Twitter existed in that era would have been calling for, you know, somebody has got to get in Johnny Rutherford's car. He hasn't put up any results. You know, it's just that people that just don't have the same, uh, you know, willing to give people a longer leash as, as they were in that era.
1: Uh, I assume we're going to talk a little bit more about Lone Star JR and preview some of this audio as well that you have in a bigger segment
0: for the station coming up again tomorrow night, right, Mike? That's correct. And in fact, he'll tell the story about where the nickname Lone Star JR came from, which that was a new story for me. I had not heard this story at all. So uh, look forward to that one tomorrow night where the actual name Lone Star JR came from the nickname.
1: Have you ever had Lone Star beer, by the way, Mike?
0: I have not because, you know, I do not drink. So uh, I have not had that, unfortunately. Um, Well, I'll tell you what.
1: Uh, I'm not a huge drinker, but I do like Lone Star beer. I will say that. its I don't think it's the highest of quality beer, but it's good beer. If you're in Texas, when in Rome, do as the Romans. A reminder to you folks, by the way, coming up on Friday, IndyCar Series practice number one on the road course. That is at 9.30 in the morning. That will go until 10.45. Then it's Indy next at 11 until 11.50. Autograph session, and then things really heat up in the afternoon with the ultimate being the qualifications and the Firestone Fast 6 from 4 until 5.15 for the Indy cars, Mike, appreciate it. Eddie Garrison, appreciate it. We will do it again tomorrow night talking about Johnny Rutherford in part two of this particular program. A reminder tomorrow morning, of course, from 7 until 10 a.m., Kevin Bowen and I will be on the air. Elio Castroneves joins us tomorrow morning at 9. Good night, everybody.